welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that wants you to pay yourself a living wage. I'm your host, Amanda. Today is the third and final installment of our conversation with Danny, and you know what? I'm pretty sad. I miss her already, so hopefully we can get her back on another episode in the future. We certainly have more stuff to talk about. Today, we'll be talking about the challenges of starting your own brand, and we'll be talking about tons of other stuff too, of course. (laughs) Before we get into that, I wanted to talk to you about something that's been on my mind for a while, vegan leather. It's especially important right now because a lot of brands and retailers are pushing the concept of, quote, leather dressing this fall. And in most cases, in fact, like a vast majority, this means vegan leather, not real like cow leather, right? Zara did a huge push of vegan leather in the spring just as we were going into lockdown. So by now, you know that all the fast fashion brands are just constantly knocking off one another. So you can safely assume that every other retailer will be following suit for fall. Like, for example, Danielle Bernstein and her brand We Wore What has been pushing it really hard. And by the way, her line is fast fashion in its purest form, despite the higher price points and claims of sustainable linen. She's launching a new collection like every week. It's fast fashion. Aritzia is basically known for its well-fitting vegan leather pants, so they're back for another round this year. And I saw a ton of vegan leather from the cheaper brands when I was at Fall Market, like back before lockdown. That seems like a hundred years ago, but here we are. It's fall, and here comes the leather dressing, right? I think I'd rather have ranch dressing, personally. (laughs) I know you wanted to hear a salad dressing pun, didn't you? (laughs) So the global synthetic leather market, which is what vegan leather is, it's synthetic leather, is currently valued at $25 billion per year. It's projected to reach $45 billion by 2025. So this is not a tiny little material, right? Like vegan leather has been around and it's been growing and it's been adopted by more and more brands. So here's the deal with vegan leather. All of my industry friends and I kind of joke constantly about what a joke vegan leather is. Like it's a scam. And we're like, who is the evil genius who decided to rebrand it as vegan leather? Some Someone in the century did it because before that it was called pleather. And pleather was seen as cheap and trashy, something to avoid if you had any taste or sense. Like you could only buy it at fast fashion stores. And even they were kind of like, no one really wants this pleather. It was renamed vegan leather and suddenly the buyer was doing something good for the planet. They were making the more sustainable choice. They were practically being vegan. And it was a good upgrade from a branding perspective. And to be fair, veganism, the vegan part of vegan leather, is a much more sustainable way of eating. Like I'm not going to argue with you about that at all. It's not for everyone, especially if you, like me, have a multitude of digestive issues that prevent you from eating a wide variety of vegetables and fruits. That's kind of where I am. But if you can do it, it's a great way to eat. But this is not a podcast about veganism. That's a totally different show. Vegan leather has nothing to do with veganism. You don't have to be vegan to wear vegan leather. I guess vegan leather is vegan in that, like, so is my iPhone. It's also vegan. And so is the cotton dress I'm wearing right now. That's also vegan. But I'm not going around saying, like, oh, have you seen my vegan cotton dress? Have you seen my vegan iPhone? 
it's just sort of like an adjective that was thrown on there. And it makes me angry that these two things are correlated at all. Because once again, veganism does minimize your own impact on the planet. But vegan leather is incredibly toxic to the environment. It's toxic to the workers who make it. And it's even toxic to the people who wear it. Because (laughs) vegan leather, aka pleather, is plastic. Like all caps, plastic. Yeah, and that's not hyperbole. It's 100% true. Before taking on its new greenwashy moniker, vegan leather was referred to by a lot of names over the years. Leatherette, PU leather, that's what we called it in the industry before vegan leather was hatched as a term. Uh, Artificial leather, imitation leather, even back in the day, Nagahide, which that was an actual brand name. You know, we've talked about how different fabrics can have brand names. So Nagahide was a brand name, imitation leather. According to Google Trends, the term vegan leather became incredibly popular, like from a mainstream perspective in 2016. But Stella McCartney was using the term to describe the materials used to make her bags back in 2010. I remember it really coming up about six years ago when we were suddenly using that term to describe all of the faux leather jackets at Nasty Gal. Previously, they were just faux leather, right? We might not have even said faux leather because we didn't want to disgust the customer by mentioning faux leather. We probably just skirted the issue, right? (laughs) Like charged $100 and hoped that the customer would draw her own conclusions that it wasn't real leather. We humans have been searching for alternatives to leather for centuries, not because we were particularly concerned about the health and well-being of animals, but rather because leather is and always has been expensive. One of the earliest versions of faux leather was called Prestoff, and it was invented in Germany in the 19th century. It's made of specially layered and treated paper pulp. It was most widely used during World War II as a replacement for leather because that was heavily rationed. It could be used as a replacement in just about any product that normally used leather, like books or purses, but I mean, because once again, it was made of paper, it tended to peel apart and just sort of crumble when exposed to moisture or repeated movement and wear. So like, for example, it couldn't be used for shoes at all. If you remember, Danny and I were talking about the era when jeans always came with a free belt. And a lot of those were made of some variation of pressed off. So they were basically just paper with some laminate thrown in. Still plastic involved, but less so. I mean, still probably not biodegradable. And I've totally bought vintage purses made of this material, and they've been just completely destroyed by one spilled drink. So pressed off, not not a great one, right? Next was Rexine. It was officially referred to as a leather cloth, and it was created in England around the 1920s. Essentially, it was a cloth coated in a mixture of nitrocellulose, which, by the way, is a mild explosive, camphor oil, alcohol, and pigment, and then it was embossed to look like leather. It was primarily used in bookbinding and upholstery like you might see it on the seats on a train or a bus. Its price is literally a quarter of that of leather, so it's great for these little larger sort of industrial uses, but it doesn't have the right feel and wear for clothing. Also, to be honest, if you had mentioned your desire to wear faux leather to someone in the 1920s, they would have thought you were crazy. That market just did not exist, and it wasn't something anyone was interested in doing. Poromerics 
are a more contemporary version of faux leather. They're made from a plastic coating, usually a polyurethane or a polyvinyl chloride PVC, on a fibrous base layer, which is typically polyester. So it's basically a plastic coating on plastic fabric. Sounds lovely, right? Nagahide is an example of this, and it uses PVC. So let's talk about PU versus PVC because these are the two major types of faux leathers that exist in the world right now. PVC requires a plasticizer called a phthalate to make it flexible and soft. And we've talked about phthalates before. They are very bad news for our health. Phthalate exposure in humans has been linked to changes in sex hormone levels, altered development of genitals, and low sperm count and quality. And that's just the beginning of the research because we're just now beginning to fully understand that plastics are very bad for us and other living things. PVC requires petroleum, aka oil, for manufacturing, and it also requires large amounts of energy to create it. The manufacturing process itself releases dioxins, which are toxic to humans and animals and highly carcinogenic. They're also linked to developmental issues. Furthermore, dioxins remain in the environment long after PVC is manufactured. It's like a ghost, a toxic ghost. Throughout its entire lifespan, meaning even when it's being warm, PVC releases toxic fumes, including phthalates, dioxins, and BPA. So that's pretty terrifying. And when PVC ends up in a landfill, it does not decompose like real leather and it can release dangerous chemicals into the water and soil because it's plastic on plastic on plastic, basically, with some extra toxins thrown in. So you're probably like, why would anyone use this in 2020 if we already are starting to get a grasp of the dangers of it? Well, Vegan brand Matt Nat is still using PVC because it's one, inexpensive, and two, it looks and feels more similar to cow leather. I did some checking around, like there's some vague language on their site about trying not to use it as much, but it all sounds like someone's attempt at misleading the customer, like they're definitely using it. It's important to call out that Greenpeace calls PVC, quote, the single most environmentally damaging of all the plastics. That's saying a lot because all the plastics are pretty terrible. PU is the more modern form of faux leather. It's less problematic than PVC, but oil is still a main ingredient and a lot of energy is required to produce it. The manufacturing process itself requires isocyanates. Exposures to these chemicals causes a wide variety of skin and respiratory issues, and they are definitely carcinogenic as well. Workers producing PU are more prone to occupational asthma, which can lead to worse and often deadly respiratory problems and even cancers. So, hey, you don't want to own something that makes other people sick, right? We agree that that's a bad idea. PU is widely used by retailers and brands at all price points from fast fashion to super high end. For example, Stella McCartney uses it. She uses a slightly, and I mean slightly less terrible version that is solvent-free and uses a recycled polyester backing, but it's still not sustainable by a long shot. There's still a lot of fossil fuels used in the manufacturing. It will still take thousands of years to decompose. And even recycling polyester requires a ton of energy and a wide variety of bad chemicals are released in the process. So 
just as a reminder, again, PU and PVC are plastic. They're virtually non-recyclable, as most plastics are. And interestingly enough, or maybe ironically enough, while they will take at least a thousand years to decompose, they somehow wear down really fast in normal wear, like peeling, chipping, just kind of falling apart, losing their finish. And they shed microplastics with every single wear. The process of creating vegan leather, whether it's PU or PVC, is incredibly toxic, uses a ton of oil, and it has an incredible carbon footprint because it uses a lot of energy. Are you starting to get the vibe that the term vegan leather is just greenwashing? Because you should. <laughs> Many environmentalists believe that real leather is the way to go, or at the very least, vintage leather. Leather is truly circular because it decomposes like any other natural material. And yes, tanning leather is its own toxic process. Chemical chemicals used in tanning include formaldehyde, coal tar derivatives, and some finishes that are cyanide-based. So yeah, that's pretty terrible too. But from an environmental standpoint, it's a lot less damaging than vegan leather. Millions of cowhides go to the landfill every year that could be used as leather products. They're the byproducts of the meat industry. Now, do I think that the meat industry is cool or doing a great job? No. Our reliance on meat is 100% fueling climate change, and we have to change that. But leather is not like fur. Animals are raised and killed to make fur garments. For leather, the hides are already created by the meat industry. Once again, is that cool or great? Definitely not. But I just want to clarify that cows aren't being rounded up just to make purses. Basically, the leather industry could decrease agricultural waste by using the waste from the meatpacking plants. Personally, I'm a fan of vintage leather because what's done is done. And I have, I don't know, I have like four or five vintage suede or leather pieces and they're all older than me. So... I'm giving them a quite a much longer life than they would have had. And in general, experts agree that all actual leathers last so much longer than faux leather. So buy yourself a vintage leather jacket and you might be able to give it to your grandchildren if you care for it. Buy a vegan leather jacket. I don't even know if you're going to have it in two years. But... That doesn't mean that you should go out and buy 100 leather garments just because leather is slightly better than vegan leather. I mean, all things in moderation, okay? The key to turning around all of this environmental damage is buying less, period. There's no magical leather or fabric that allows you to buy new clothes every week and wear them only a couple of times. So plant-based faux leathers are beginning to emerge on the scene. One is called apple leather, which is adorable, and it combines waste from the apple processing industry with PU. So it's still plastic and it's not biodegradable. But I guess it's slightly less devastating than traditional PU and PVC. Once again, toxic chemicals are still being used to produce it. So I'm not really sure what the win is there. Another much more popular plant-based faux leather is called Pinatex, and it's made from pineapple leaf waste from the Philippines, which sounds pretty cool, right? But it's not biodegradable. It's a mixture of pineapple leaves, PLA, which is a poly 
lactic acid, and petroleum-based resins. So yeah, it's also plastic and it uses fossil fuels. There are other plant-based options out there as well right now, but all of them in one way or another utilize fossil fuels as part of the treatment or they have like a plastic element. Otherwise, they would fall apart. I mean, they're made from fruits and vegetables or mushrooms. So the only way they can stand anywhere or exposure to water is by coating them with plastic. So there's no easy fix out there, no matter what anyone is telling you. Another option is kind of off on the horizon, and it's made of collagen created by yeast that are grown in a lab. And it's still being developed. It's going to be called cultured leather. It's still several years away from commercial applications, meaning like when customers could buy it. But it may be a good alternative when it hits the market. But once again, it's not a miracle fabric that allows you to buy as much as you want, wear it a couple of times, and then donate it to the Goodwill. Because remember... It's not just synthetics and plastic that make today's fashion industry environmentally devastating. It's the overall carbon footprint of the industry, the dyes and other chemicals used to treat clothing, the shipping, the packaging, the exploitation of workers. I could go on and on. My overall advice is to skip all artificial leather. I mean, like I said, maybe there'll be a better option down the road, but it's not here right now. In the meantime, you need to just opt for other things. If you're comfortable with vintage or upcycled leather, because that's the other thing about leather, it can be easily recycled into other products in a way in which faux leather cannot, I recommend taking that approach. I would also just ask yourself, is is a pair of vegan leather pants a trend that will really last? Or is it just another fast fashion attempt to sell you something shoddy that won't last, both from a style perspective and literally from a physical perspective? I think you know the answer there. (laughs) Okay, well, let's get into our conversation with Danny. Okay, so we've talked about your exciting career as a fast fashion sweater designer. (laughs) You do something totally different now. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Picnic and what you've been doing and the differences? At the end of 2018, after deliberating over it for pretty much exactly seven months, aka when I got my green card, (laughs) I decided to leave the fast fashion world. And at the time, I was taking business classes, like how to basically like being an entrepreneur 101. And I didn't know exactly what I was going to do when I left, but in my head, I was going to start my own brand of sweaters that I wanted to make domestically crazy and freelance also for different brands, kind of play the field a little bit because I had gotten so pigeonholed. And I felt like in terms of trying to branch out to different types of retailers or designers, brands, that doing that as a freelancer might be a little bit easier than going straight into like finding full-time work, which I knew I didn't want to do anyways. Mm -hmm. That was at the end of 2018. After really truly crunching the numbers on how much it would cost to produce my own line, I even went to LA and visited three different factories, which was like an amazing experience. I realized that I just like, I wasn't going to turn a profit for like a couple of years maybe. Oh yeah, definitely. So how would I 
pay my rent? How would I Mm -hmm. eat? (laughs) You know, there's just like so many things that I was just like, oh, reality check. Like, so glad I did that program because I feel like a lot of people launch into that without actually doing the work to make a real business plan. I think that is a really good call out because can I just tell you like my whole career, people have been like, you should start your own brand. And I'm like, dude, it's really impossible to do that if you don't have like generational wealth to pull from. Yes. Or like, I don't know, you've got like a husband who works in finance and makes a shit ton of money. Like a lot of the brands that we see out there right now that are like smaller uh, tend to be based in some sort of generational wealth yeah. or some rich husband. Yeah. I mean, I hate saying that, but it's like true. I can think of a ton off the top of my head. Or they like have connections to like a factory or something within the family or something right, like that. Right, right. Totally, totally. But if you're just like, I have a great idea, I want to do this thing, it's really, I mean, like I actually am going to say like, it's probably good that you didn't do that in 2018 oh because God. what would you be doing right now? Oh, I mean, you would be losing sure. your mind, yeah. right? This would be the year that I was supposed to start turning a profit. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think this time is like really devastating for all the people who took that chance, who didn't have a safety net. Like we need to be buying stuff from them. Yes, absolutely. So basically when I was actually on this trip in LA, when I was visiting factories, all this time, like since I moved back to New York, so like 2015, I have been selling vintage. So mostly through Etsy or Depop. This is just like a passion thing of mine that like wasn't really for any financial reason. When I started it, it was basically just like, I need some sort of creative outlet, ironically, since I'm a designer. I know. I I hear you. I get it. (laughs) So I noticed one of the sales I had was a sweater. This was, like I said, happened when I was in LA. And the destination was like some name I didn't know, but J.W. Anderson, the company in London. So I was like, super excited. I was like, Oh my God, somebody's buying this as like a reference. And I, cause I looked up the name of the person on LinkedIn as anyone would. And lo and behold, they were the knitwear designer there. And I was like, that's so cool. They're buying it as a reference. Like that's super rad. And I told my husband about this. And like I mentioned, my husband's been in the industry, so it's not like totally foreign to him as I feel like some significant others might feel the fashion <laughs> industry is if they're not in a, in a, you know, similar sort of field. Um, yeah. He was like, Danny, you should do that. And I was like, what? He's like, you should like, you know, just source for knitwear designers. And he's so like, smart. He's right. Yeah. He's a freaking genius. And I was like, you're right. I should. And so I started thinking about it further because there's this kind of part of the industry that people outside the industry might not fully know about, but basically these studios that bring in inspiration to designers or brands and sell them to them. So there's two different kind of levels to that. There's ones who are making things like maybe it's a print or knit downs, like stitches, stitch developments that they sell to these designers and they buy them and buy this um, original design so that they can reproduce it and not run the risk of it being copyrighted by someone else. But then there's also this area of like vintage sellers. And so 
it's not just like, oh, the vintage store down the street from you, like, why can't you just buy from them? They are sourcing and curating their collections based on trends and based on the idea of like being able to replicate that idea. So like, you know, you find something really cute at a vintage store that's like just right for you. But these mm -hmm. are items that there there's kind of a thought behind it that this could be blown out kind of to the map, not necessarily the masses because some smaller brands buy these items, but something that would have a, a larger appeal to mm -hmm. a larger audience. So I felt like I didn't know of anyone doing the vintage in the sweater sphere specifically, because like, you know, these listeners come to understand there's so much that makes sweaters different from other garments. So mm -hmm. having the background I did and having this passion for vintage, I decided that I could kind of bridge those two things together and develop a studio where I could source and curate a collection of sweaters that I would sell to brands as inspiration. So much rather than buy that, than go down to Zara and knock something off from Zara, you know, mm -hmm. by some sort of kismet, I met this woman in Seattle who sells vintage prints. Her name is Patricia Nugent. She's amazing. And she was starting to kind of refine her business to be focused more on home and interiors. And she had this large mm -hmm. archive of knits that didn't really apply to what she was doing anymore. So she was looking for someone to sell this archive to and literally met just at the perfect time. I purchased the entire archive from her. It took some deliberating, obviously, because <laughs> it was like a big purchase, 5,000 pieces. Oh These my were God. not full sweaters. They're like basically what we would understand or the public would understand is just swatches basically right, right. of vintage and archival knit references, mostly cut and sew back. You know, some of them go as far back as like the, I mean, I probably have something from like the 1900s, but that's mostly crazy. they're like 60s, 70s sort of stuff, which is cool because that's like totally my jam. Wow. How did you get it all home? I mean, you had to go the whole way across the country. She shipped it to me. So she sh basically, I met her in Seattle mm -hmm. because I, you know, was planning to go home to Vancouver. So I decided to fly in and out of Seattle instead. And my mom drove down and met me there. At that time, I was like, maybe I could convince her to just sell me 500. <laughs> and she was like, um, trying to find someone to buy all of them. You know, my mom and I were chatting and she was like, I don't know, Danny, I had really tried to save money from my previous jobs and I did quite well at that. So I was, she was just like, I think this could be a really good investment for you. Yeah. So yeah, I just, I decided to go for it and I named the company Kismet Concept Studios because it was literally Kismet that it all happened. And I actually started the business with someone else we kind of had two separate businesses under the same umbrella and she was doing prints and I was doing knits I won't get into that now but it, <laughs> it didn't end up working out mm -hmm. that way it happens um, it happened to all of yeah. us <laughs> I mean yeah it was a lot 2019 was rough and then 2020 happened oh um, god but it 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 really 
the way it ended was for the best. I think that we both will agree on that now. Mm -hmm. We basically lined up a few appointments within one week. And in the first appointment or the first day, I believe, definitely that week, I made back my investment. That's amazing. Yeah. What a success story. So I was like, oh my God, this is a real thing. This is happening, you know? The way that it's been able to happen is because of my industry experience and connections. So if I had started this like fresh out of school, like I wouldn't have known what I was doing and I wouldn't have known anyone to reach out to, to be like, I've got this thing going. I think it could really benefit you. But so I basically ended up developing like a core group of customers. Like it's not something I've been able to, I mean, my goal was this year, I would start like Mm -hmm. extending it further, but honestly, I so value the core clients that I work with. And even through the pandemic, I've a couple of them, one of them has completely folded, which is so sad, but you know, a couple of the other ones have, you know, even reached out to me and been like, how are things going? Are you still, are you Mm -hmm. still sourcing? And so sourcing has been tough, but of course I've got that huge um, that I keep returning to. It's been still steadily going, but as you know, the pandemic hit in March and I've been freelancing at the same time too. I mean, last year was like a crazy year for me because I, I mean, oh my God, my taxes were so. so <laughs> I don't want to think about it. It was like, oh my God, I don't want to think about it anymore. Because I also was like, I'm not going to like sugarcoat it, but I was like really like struggling. Yeah. And I worked a little bit of retail to try and like make ends meet. I ended up helping serving at like an events, like a catering company, which was like wild. I've never done any sort of serving. Like it's always been retail Uh when I was, you know, when I started out and everything, but I started serving, which is like a weird skill to learn when you're 30 years old, the whole year humbled me a lot. Mm -hmm. And I was like freelancing a lot too, but then obviously that all kind of like stopped abruptly, basically March 20th, everything, all freelance work dried up. So, you know, I was feeling like everyone else, like really confused. Let's talk about picnic because it seems like, I know this has been around since like last year, but it seems like you've been really focusing on it since the pandemic began. So what's it like to build a small brand (laughs) during an unprecedented world pandemic? Yeah, great question. Yeah. So I just kind of started things last year. I was actually doing more like tie dye last year. So it was just kind of this outlet I had to just make things with my hands. So in the spring, you know, with things with Kismet, obviously being on hold and just like that whole unknown of like, where is my career going? I just needed an outlet to just like really delve into. And so I, like, I I think I said before that I had, you know, these towels and I decided to like try and craft some hats out of them. And so I just kind of like threw myself into this project. I just needed something to like dive into to distract me from like all the horrific things that were happening around me. I posted that hat on my personal social media and I was like, okay, this is where picnic is going. And I just kind of like dove into it. I had like 
a little fan club, it felt like, which was really cool. And then that fan mm-hmm. club started to grow and I just was like following along with it. And, you know, I, I really enjoy putting things in like my stories and being like, what do you guys think of this? What do you think of that? Like, that's, what's really awesome about <laughs> social media is you can kind of like test the waters and not commit to anything and, until you really know what your audience is into. Mm-hmm. So that's been really exciting to have that reaction from people and like to see my like following grow so rapidly has been really cool. But it's definitely come with its challenges too, because like I have this window of opportunity because, you know, there's some people looking at what I'm doing and I want to like grow and fulfill this demand. But things are really challenging, you know, like I've got a couple people who are now helping me out with production. And what I would love to have is like a studio where I'm set up and like these people can be like right next to me and I can, they can show me what they're doing and I can be like, that looks awesome. And they can have ideas. And like, I can tell them like, you know, that doesn't look quite right. Try doing it this way, like things like that. But just the reality of that is, well, number one, it's hard because I live in New York. So finding a space like that would be hard to begin with. But then most people aren't feeling comfortable being that kind of face to face. So it would be like in my apartment. So it just like doesn't really make sense right now. So that's been really hard. Like I've had a lot of people reach out to me about wholesale. And, you know, it's hard to begin with, because all my items are one of a kind. Like I, so I don't really understand how that would work in terms of wholesale. Like how do you order something without knowing what the scope of the collection is going to look like, you <laughs> right, know, like it's right. all kind of unknown. Cause it's like, just based on what towels I've just sourced, you know? Right. Right. So there's definitely a lot of challenges with that. And I, again, like back to what I said before about like my window, like I just really hope I'm not going to like lose out on this like window just because of the struggle to scale right now. And I don't want people to be like, I can never get one of her hats. So like I give up on this or something, you know? Right. I mean, and I think that is one of the challenges of the entire slow fashion movement is that we've become so accustomed to being able to kind of get whatever we want whenever we want. But I would say, I think there's something to things being unavailable. I mean, in bigger retail settings where I've worked, like we try to fake that all the time. Or think about how like the Kardashians, like Kylie Jenner will do that with her lip line. For sure. Like Supreme's whole model is based off of that. Like this, you know, coveting something and like literally lining up outside the store so that you can get like, you know, the very small quantities that they're offering and whatever, like collab. I don't really know much about Supreme, honestly. I'm <laughs> yeah. like saying that like, as if I do, but I have no idea. <laughs> well, so I've heard, I do see lines. <laughs> well, I will say here's one that is more in like the realm of like what we're thinking, which is big, but yeah. I think mm, totally. Oh, they're amazing. I'm obsessed. Big Bud Press has built a huge, I mean, I don't know the size of their business, but it seems pretty big to me and it's constantly scaling. Yeah. And not intentionally either, but they've really been driven by this like scarcity model because it's like, here's what we were able to make. 
set your yeah. alarm and come and order it or you're going to miss also, it. Also fashion brand company. Yes. I love them so much. And they're the same. They're just like, oh, we had this much fabric. So we were able to make this many pieces. Right, right. So I... I know it can feel stressful for you, but I think that this is this could work in your favor. Just as a person who like True. has been in the industry True. for a long time. Also, like nobody wants what's readily available. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> like, That's so true. And I think especially now more than ever, like you're acting with integrity. You're really delivering what you say you are. Like that's so meaningful to know that you're not mass producing these hats and like right. someone else isn't suffering to make them. So Speaking of like, you know, mass producing versus not mass producing, let's talk mm-hmm. about pricing a little bit because please. You no, know, yeah, I think that this is really hard and it's kind of something we talk about in every episode of Clothes Horse because I'm really yes, trying to show that clothes that are cheap are cheap for a reason, right? Things yeah. that are more expensive, especially when we get into like the area of slow fashion, where someone here domestically is making it and they're being paid a fair wage, things get more expensive. So have you struggled with trying to determine the right price for your work? Like so much. I I can't even explain. I I mean – I think that's hard. And I've – yeah. And I've talked to other makers about this too. Like, for example, there's this other girl making hats and like different hats than mine, but like I saw her pricing and I was like shocked by how much she was charging. And there's just so many layers to it because it's like, for one, you're not paying yourself for like all the things you've talked about in your podcast. Like there's so many levels to what goes into pricing, like marketing, paying your employees like hourly wages for the labor. Like I, I mean, that's just scratching the surface. And like, so by pricing your things low, you're, it's not like a real, it's not the real value of your product. And so you're doing a disservice to yourself, but you're also kind of doing a disservice to other makers too. Because if you come in there and your prices are like really low and people are like, wait, okay, so your item is $100, but this person sells it for 30. Mm-hmm. Like you're both making them and make this take the same amount of time, right? So it's like, it's definitely a struggle with that. I feel like it's kind of our responsibility as makers to charge based on the value of like the time you put in, the effort, the actual design, mm-hmm. you know, like that's a part of it too. And I feel like that's that's really hard because this person I was speaking about who's doing these hats and she was like, but I don't have the same following as you. I don't have like thousands of followers like you do. So like, why would somebody pay like $100 for my hat when I don't have that many people who are like interested in what I'm doing? And so there definitely is value to that. Like I totally understand. I started lower too. Mm -hmm. Like I started my prices a little bit lower and gradually raised them a bit. So I do think there's like definitely an element of truth to that for sure. But I think that like, if you're doing something unique and different than like, people will find the value in that. Like you'll attract the right people. 100%. And I think you know, we talk about paying workers a living wage. You need to pay yourself a living wage. And this is something yes. I have this conversation with people all the time. You know, my goal is to really help people build their businesses who are doing things the right way, you know, 
actually yeah. like making stuff responsibly. And that's like kind of the first thing I say to people like, okay, well, how many hours did it take you to make this? And that includes sourcing the fabric, cutting it out, yeah. sewing it, you know, yeah. any other design work you needed to do, like packaging it up to ship it out, listing it on Etsy, whatever you're doing. Out of your all your hours, how much do you think you should be making an hour? Even if you were like, I'm only paying myself $15 an hour, chances right. are you should be charging more than 30 because you also need to cover totally. all of your other expenses. But like, just as you would want to ensure that whatever you're selling is going to cover the cost of, you know, hosting your website or PayPal yeah. fees or, you know, whatever, whatever, yeah. you also need to be covering your work. And it's really For easy. Sure. I mean, I'm like, I was captain of the math team, so I love this shit, but it is really <laughs> easy to sit down and add up everything and be like, oh, that's what I should be charging for this. Right. Yeah. It's actually not that easy, maybe because you're a math whiz, it's easy, <laughs> but it's really hard. Like I've struggled with it so much because like, yeah, like how do I add in like all the time I'm spending on Instagram or like my email answering questions or like people inquiring about like, why does this say it's delivered and it didn't deliver? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm oh not your mail God, person. Like now. things like that. That's like, no one's paying me for that, you know? Right, right. Um, but I, you should be paid for that. I actually, anyone who's listening, if you are struggling to figure out how to kind of balance your finances there, I've actually been working on some tools that are very easy and based in Google Docs. Oh, yes. Uh, that that's you, awesome. That you, can, that you can use to itemize all your things and kind of, you know, the other part, I mean, I could go on about this for hours because I love this shit, <laughs> is taking like creating goals for yourself that will allow you to grow your business. So setting mm. targets for like the number of hats or the number of masks you need to sell in a month for in sure. order to roll out XYZ, to afford a studio, to someday open a retail space, like whatever you want to do. It sounds really intimidating, but I've actually been for years now working on this with all kinds of like indie people yeah. to get them on track. And it helps you feel – it's like the unknown is always so – intimidating, yeah, right? Totally. And I feel like paying yourself fairly is part of that unknown. So you're sort of like drowning without knowing it. You're like treading water because you're afraid to step in there and lay it all out. Absolutely. I feel like you've kind of hit the nail on the head just in general with like, and if I could like give one word of advice to anyone starting out, it's to kind of like, I feel like what you just explained is completely disregarded by a lot of people like a lot of people who are trying to start their own brand like just think like I need to make amazing things and like put them out there but like mm -hmm. you gotta sit down and like actually look at the numbers and look at like how much time things take and like I think it's a little overwhelming for a lot of creative people <clears throat> and designers but like that is such a huge part of it like if this is really what you want to do you have to spend some time. Like I took this business course at uh, the small business services of New York. And like the, like one lasting thing that like the instructor left us with is like, don't forget to every week be working. I can't remember how she phrased it, but like we get so into the business and like the day to day, but you have to work on your business too. So like you got to a lot mm -hmm. a certain amount of time every week to work on like just the structure of the business, the logistics, the finances, 
the not fun stuff, basically, unless you're you, Amanda, who apparently finds that <laughs> fun. <laughs> I think I just I'm, – I'm really into solving a problem. And, you know, I went to art school, so I definitely never learned any of this yeah, stuff no. in school. And I feel like if you're creative and you actually learn that in school, it's some sort of miracle. Right. This sort of process and organization and the tools to do it aren't really readily available. So True. if you're a creative person – and you want to make stuff, you're just like, oh, I want to sell it. Like you were saying, I want to get my work out there. But the reality is that like, first off, our sense of how much things should cost is so skewed. It's so twisted. It's so twisted. Especially when we talk about something that you're going to wear on your body. Yeah. Like we, people think that jeans should be $20. Like that's just not true. You know, and a handmade hat certainly should not be $30. I mean, that's, that's crazy. And so- I think it's it's a going to be a process for all of us to like value our work properly. Yeah. And I've totally dude, I have been out there underselling myself my entire life too, so I totally get it. Right. I mean, I would do huge creative projects that required an intense amount of hours and be like, "Uh, I'll just charge you $10 an hour for this just to get my name out there." Yeah. Like no way, yeah. right? So <sighs> it's like a deprogramming kind of. It is. Cuz we've is. all been programmed to think like that like the value of things are a certain, you know, what they are. But like, mm-hmm. for example, my another friend of mine who's a maker, she like put a new collection out there and like stated the prices. And she had some people come back to her and be like, oh, I really wanted this, but it's just like so expensive. Like, I can't believe you're charging so much, whatever. And I'm, and she came to me and she's like, I don't know what to do. Like, I feel really bad, like, you know, making it so that some people have a hard time, like purchasing what I'm doing. And I'm like, maybe don't say this, but like, maybe this will give you some comfort is like, if you ask that person, do you think I should charge myself less than minimum wage for what I do? They Mm -hmm. would be like, Oh my God, no, of course you should be charging yourself at least minimum wage. You're talented. You're doing amazing things. You put so much time and effort into this. And then they'd be like, okay, I get it. I get what you're saying. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. this is the value of how much time we put into things. No, 100%. I think, you know what? The right customers, the people you want to attract will appreciate that kind of transparency. Like, Hey, here's my, here's this hat. It's launching this week. It took two hours to sew. The towel costs this much. I right. needed to pay this much to Etsy or what, you know, whatever, like totally. it all out. because once again, our sense of pricing is so skewed that we are not even understanding unless we take a step back that when we buy a dress for 10 bucks, that the people who made it got paid 30 cents. Like when you, when you yeah. step back, what was that insane statistic you said in one of your podcasts about like the percent of like the labor of like the price you're seeing, like the average percent. It ranges and it kind of depends on the retailer between one to four per- okay. one to four percent oh though. So God. when we're talking about something crazy. Yeah, I know it's crazy. When we're talking about something that's ten dollars, we're saying they got forty cents and that was everybody who worked on it. And that's in the best case scenario. So when you say that out loud and do that work, you're suddenly like, wait, I don't want a $10 dress. I don't want a $20 dress. I'm not sure if I want a $50 dress because that means right. at the best case scenario, everybody who made it, who touched it, made 
$2 in total. In total, once again, they're all splitting that up. It's like when you have a tip jar at a restaurant and everyone splits it up at the end. That's what we're talking about here. Not each person made $2. And so when you start to see that, you're like, ugh, I – I don't want that to happen. But once again, I don't want to be a part of that. You don't want to be a part of that. You would be a monster to be like, eh, whatever. You win some, you lose some or something. You know, you probably wouldn't be listening to this podcast. But I think that it's good for us to take a step back and really think about that. And that includes like slow fashion products. Like people making that stuff deserve to also make a living wage. I mean, they're putting themselves out there. They're certainly disconnecting themselves from a more comfortable way of life by deciding to do this on their own, which you and I have talked about how the more you learn about this industry, the harder it is to go back into working in it, right? Yes, that is definitely true. However, (laughs) I, the amount of money I'm making now compared to before, like I can't afford to live in the apartment I'm in, you know? And it's, I think that's the reality that's like, a little, um, I don't know. I just, I don't think people really understand because like, you know, with the following I'm getting and how things are selling out as fast as I can make them, Mm -hmm. people are like, Oh, you're doing so well. And I'm like, totally like, it's so awesome. Like I can't deny that, but like, I would be like making a shit ton more money if I stopped doing this and went back to freelancing or found a full-time job. But yeah, I don't want to do those things. So I have to like figure out how to make this work. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard. Like, I don't know what I would do if someone reached out to me and said, like, I have a freelance project for you. Like, because I don't want to put this on hold. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like I put this momentum and I don't want to like slow down on that momentum. So I mean, 100%, I think you're definitely yeah. at this turning point where you kind of have to push through it. Exactly. Uh, I mean, I'm sort of in a similar position where like I don't want to work in buying for another fast fashion company and most, yeah. most, 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 most retailers are fast fashion now. I mean, that's just is what it is. Right. And I also don't want to go do like merchandising for a fast fashion brand. Like it's really challenging to determine what I'm going to do next, but it also means I'm going to be broke for a really long time. Like we are moving out to the country to cut down on our expenses and I, I mean, I guess there are no jobs anyway right now for what I do. So it doesn't matter anyway, but it is interesting to me when I think about like, could I work in that industry again? And I just, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tough. Cause you don't want to say like never, never again. Cause you never really know. Like we've all got bills to pay. Exactly. Exactly. And it's kind of those bills to pay are what have kept me in it for so long. But I will, yeah. like, the pandemic has obviously changed so many people. And I would say if the pandemic hasn't changed you, you are living some life of privilege that I can't even understand. <laughs> yeah. But, and and to be fair, there are definitely people who are living that life of privilege and are untouched. But yeah. I have had all this time, you know, I've been working on the podcast and I've learned even more about how this industry functions. And it just... Whew, I would have to put on some really serious blinders to go back into it. Like I would have to oh be my blindfolded. God, I have sure. to like probably 
If only there were like a drug you could take that would just switch off that part of your brain. I was just going to say like, would you just have to like go to work drunk every day or something <laughs> just to like kind of like ignore oh all the God. terrible things that you know are the truth about the industry you're working in? I know. In? Yeah. I know because it's like so many layers. My belief and what keeps me going is that educating people and helping people who are trying to do better, do better is like what we need to do if we want to turn it upside down. Yeah. Like for sure. If, if, if things that were made the right way were more readily available, that's what people would buy, you know? Yeah. It's just hard. Yeah. It's just hard. But I think also it's like the, if the information was out there more, like I want everyone to listen to your podcast to under like people who are in the industry, not in the industry, like we're in the industry, like my mom and like stuff like that. Like, I feel like there's just so much information that people like, I mean, even myself having been in the industry for so long, there's so many things you speak about that. I'm just like, Oh my God, I had no idea that that's how that was done. (laughs) You know, things like that. Yeah. I mean, I have found like, there's plenty of random facts all over the internet and I see people posting them on social media, but just reading those facts doesn't like sink in until you really like unpack the whole thing and explain. Yeah, until you read them all together. Yeah, yeah, basically. and see how they like connect. One at a time is like harsh to hear, but then like to connect them all together, it's like that is terrifying. Anyway, going back to your business, because I could talk about how terrible everything is all day. <laughs> <laughs> it's like what I do you know, with my cat, basically. So, okay. So another thing that I think it kind of, when we're talking about paying yourself and all the time mm-hmm. you put into the business is what about like setting some boundaries there? Basically, mm. and I, I'm going to say this, I struggle with the same thing with the podcast. I work well, yeah. I work 12 hours a day on it. Right. I never have a day off. And I'm trying yeah. to set those boundaries there. How do you, do you have any tips there? What do you do? Do you also not set boundaries and work all the time? Oh my God. I do not. I'm, I'm having such a hard time with that. I just started therapy just over a month ago. And that's literally the only thing we've talked about <laughs> for six weeks or like five weeks, whatever. Um, so I'm like trying really, really hard, but I am not like a good, um, person to speak to like about specifics of what I do because I'm still learning Mm -hmm. but um but it's so important like every like there's so many elements of it too like it's like setting boundaries in terms of like how much you work and like you know maybe having like a point in the evening where you're like okay no more from this point on because it doesn't only affect yourself but it affects like the people you live with, the cats you live with, like they feel it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And so like, you've got to have a point where you turn off and, and sometimes that's easier than other days, but then also like boundaries with like customers too. Like what I said a moment ago about like a customer emailing me about like the package says it was delivered. It wasn't Like I have to, like I have in all my items, I have like my shipping information and my like return policies and all that stuff. Most people probably don't read it until maybe they have an issue. Hopefully then they read it and then don't contact me. (laughs) But (laughs) if someone contacts you and they're like, what can we do about this? And I'm just like, well, like you kind of have to decide 
in what situations will you be like firm? Mm -hmm. And in what situations will you have some lenience? If you're like lenient with that one person, and then someone else comes to you with like the same issue or something similar, and then you're like really not lenient and firm on your policies, then it's kind of hard to like build your business when you're that kind of like all over the place. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's, this is literally something my therapist said to me. She's like, just know what your boundaries are. Like, I feel like, you know, you do have to have a little bit of leniency with people, especially because you're trying to build a brand. You don't want people to like, you know, be like, this person has terrible customer <laughs> no, service. True. It's true. But I don't know. It's definitely, that's definitely a challenge for sure. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I just want to say this is a public service announcement for everybody who's listening. Please <laughs> stop giving people grief about their your package not arriving on time because things are fucked right now. And it's oh. not just USPS. Yeah. It's all, all of the services. I mean, I've, in the time of the pandemic so far, which I can't believe we've been doing this for six months. Can I just say that out loud? Like now it's- yeah. It's so it's crazy. So uh, wild. We have had so many package drama situations at our house or like our mails only been coming like every mm -hmm. three days. I mean, it is what it is. And especially when we're talking about packages being shipped and the carrier having them, the person who's selling, who sold you the thing can't really do anything about it. Has like nothing yeah, to do with it yeah. after it leaves their hands. Like there's nothing they can do as long as you put the right address on their thing. I think that like a lot of this is so frustrating. There's so much to unpack here, but with the whole like feeling that the customer is always right. Uh, like, I know. Where did that come from? And can we please get rid of it? Like, <laughs> you know what? Well, and here's the thing with the customer being always being right. It's sort of subjective, right? Because when it totally. comes to people buying things at stores or, you know, from sellers on the internet, the customer is always right. But like, what about when you're like a tenant? Are you always right when you talk to your landlord about issues with your apartment? He doesn't seem to look at you that way, right? right. Or like, how about when you go to see a doctor? Do you feel like you're always right? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I talk about that all the time. No, but like I'm telling you it's cancerous. It is. Like, no, that's not how it works. Or like when I'm talking to Comcast, they never treat me like the customer is always right. Never. Right. Or like the electric company's like, uh, we're going to have to do a credit check and we're going to need a deposit. Once again, is that the customer always being right? Do is, is the electric company making us all feel like we're special and entitled? Never. And like literally I'm, never. I'm not saying they should, right? <laughs> but like this idea, I mean, I, my husband and I have talked about this a lot because in the early days of eBay, like we're hardcore eBay people. We don't really sell much on eBay anymore, but we have a lot in our, in the early aughts and stuff. Yeah. And back then, like, there was a lot of protection as a seller. Like you mm -hmm. couldn't get swindled by people. And now slowly it's like no matter what the seller says, I mean, no matter what the buyer says, they're right. And so if they say you shipped something, you didn't ship something, then you don't get paid. Or like if they say you <sighs> sent them something that wasn't as listed, even though it was. Because, you know, some people are just jerks. Yeah. Period. And that is sure. just how it is. Some people are new to buying things online. Some people are this. Some people are that. Whatever. And so now if you're a small business person, I feel like you are more than anyone super penalized by this attitude of the customer is always right. Yeah. Even though no one is right 
all the time. Right. And I have, you know, I worked retail for a long time and I have had a lot of these customers who were just so right, just be so abusive. Yeah. You know? Like you have to sacrifice your dignity. It's so to true. Have a customer service job on any level. Oh my and God. I, yeah. I, I just hate that. And I, I don't really feel for those people. <laughs> I think it's an American thing because when I've traveled yeah. abroad, the first thing that has struck me is that I, as the customer, was not always right. And I was expected to behave myself and be well-mannered. That's <laughs> so true. I really do think it is an American thing. And I feel like it is because like things are become so globalized, it's kind of spreading a little further. Like mm-hmm. think about the whole like return policy thing. Like I remember growing up, in Canada, there were definitely things that like you could not return, like return policies were limited to like short periods of time, some things were not returnable. But then as all the American stores started to move into Canada, and everything had like a crazy return policy, like you could return like, literally like a bed you've slept in for like a year or something, like insane things, then all of a sudden, like, to be competitive, the Canadian retailers had to kind of change their policies too. And so I do think it's like having a, a kind of domino effect throughout the world. Mm-hmm. But yeah, mm-hmm. it is, it's, it's pretty nuts. It's, it's wild. Yeah. It's, it's so, it's so crazy. And it, you're right about the return policies gradually loosening. Mm-hmm. Cause I feel like when I was like a teenager, like you maybe had two weeks mm-hmm. to return something. Exactly. And I think it had to have the tags on it. And you certainly couldn't return things like underwear and bathing suits. Yeah. And now I think you can kind of return whatever you want. And you always had to have a receipt always. Yeah. too. Like now, now like there's so many places that like you don't even necessarily need a receipt super weird. Yeah, it's it's super weird. Definitely return policies have been part of this, like the customer always being mega right no matter what. Right. Which is ironic to me because you and I have talked about how some of these big corporations that we've worked for are so obsessed with the idea that their employees might be stealing from them. Oh my God. Yes. And like, I mean, like literally like searching employees, you know, I have had friends who've had to work for places where if you brought a bag to work, it had to be completely transparent. Wow. Yeah. Pretty common in retail or like, you know, just this obsession that the employees are the ones who are stealing and defrauding. But then it's like, let's let the customers return whatever anytime. Because they're always right. Yeah. It's like the employee's not always right, but the customer is. And so. it's the same thing as going with masks because my friends who work retail are like, we're not really allowed to tell the person to put a mask on. Jeez. Like we can That's suggest crazy. it. I know. I know. This is that what is we're talking so about. Like endangering the employees. Right. Like, employees are endangered by jerks who need to go shopping oh. with no mask. So anyway, that's another one where I could talk all day. That is so <laughs> I do, I do think about that cultural shift a lot, though, and I think it's really, really hard for smaller businesses. Yeah, definitely. Because you know, you made that. That was your hard work and your money. Your money, your personal money, is tied up in it. Yeah, I mean, I've had somebody want to return a hat because it was like didn't fit their head, even though I've like been really specific about oh. the sizing and stuff, and it just gets really tough because like the way I do my drops, like it would be kind of weird if I like did this drop and everything sold out. And then all of a sudden one of those items is available again. Mm-hmm. Like then it's like, well, why is that available again? Like did some, you know, like it's just, it's, it's yeah. 
Well, once again, that that makes me think of Big Bud Press, how they are very firm and direct in all of their social media where they're like, don't buy multiple sizes because it fucks us over. I've, I've noticed that with them. I think that's so yeah. awesome that they like explain that, you know, why that is. And they literally include a card in your order that tells you like, if you're going to return this, you need to fold it up, wrap it up nicely, oh, wow. make sure you get makeup on it. Like, yeah, you know what? We should be doing that. The kinds of returns I've seen in my career having to process returns, I'm like, you're disgusting and rude. Like, yeah. you just turned this into garbage just That's by being insane. lazy. Um, obviously, I don't think the customer is always right. <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> so another challenge I think for us small brands is marketing, like, you mm. know, getting yourself out there. So you've had a lot of success with Instagram. I have. Yeah. It's been really great. In the beginning, I did like a couple sponsored ads, which were like, okay. Like they definitely got me like a little bit of traffic and drew some attention, which was good. Like in the beginning, I haven't done that for, I guess it's only been like a couple months, like a few months. But what was really worked for me was I, I, I think I heard from another like person who was doing something similar, like this whole quote collab thing, which if you don't know what the word collab means in like the influencer world, well, I'll tell you it's giving free shit to people. That's what it means. So like I've had so many people DM me and be like, Hey, like people who are like quote influencers, you know, like with a range of following, like Anywhere from like, I've had someone reach out to me, they had like 300 followers to someone with like, like 55,000 followers. And they're like, Hey, I love your brand. I love what you're doing. Um, I'd love to collab with you. And so just to decode that for anyone who hasn't had this happen to them. (laughs) I have so many feelings. I have so many feelings. They literally are asking you send me free yes, shit. Do not. And I'm not do this. like totally. Well, okay. I, I can't hate on that entirely. Like, I think there's something a little brazen <laughs> about like reaching out to someone and asking them. For I agree. It. But I, I agree. But I have done it. The way I did it was I like looked, I, you know, cause you know, there's so many different types of influencers out there. And like, I was talking to my friend about this the other day and, and, mentioned that I had done this and she's like, I just can't imagine like sending free shit to like vapid, like influencers, whatever. And like, I completely get that perspective, but they're not all like vapid social media influencers. There are some people who are actually influencing and saying really important things and like using their platforms in really great ways. So I looked for some people who I really admired what they were doing and what they stood for and their ethos. And, and I reached out to a number of people and told them what I was doing and told them that I loved what they were doing and basically asked them, like, do you like what I'm doing? Because like, I didn't have, there were a couple of people that didn't respond and I'm actually totally fine with that because like, it doesn't offend me at all because if you don't actually like what I'm doing and wouldn't wear one of the things I'm making, then like, I definitely don't want you to have one because that goes against what I <laughs> stand for. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want you to have this hat yeah. that just like sits in your closet and like you wore it one time because someone, or maybe they didn't, you know, like 
I want people who are like psyched on it. And I'm so happy that like the four people that ended up saying yes, all have worn their hats like multiple times through the summer, like since I gave it to them, like they posted like, you know, not long after I sent it to them. And then I've seen them wear it like more and more and more times. And that was like even more exciting than the first time I saw them wear it because that's the whole idea I'm shooting for is like buy things or wear things that you want to wear for a long time. So yeah, that was like a whole, uh, verbal diarrhea about, um, (laughs) but, but yeah, I, again, like the whole, like reaching out to people and asking them to collab. I don't know. It just feels a little weird to me. It's like, just say like, first of all, the word collab is really annoying because like I did that collaboration with my friend, Selena Sanders. And like, every time I was like teasing the collab, I was like collab coming up. And I was like, I wonder if people know what I mean by collab. Like it's like a real collaboration. Like it's an (laughs) actual collaboration. Yeah. Cause sometimes collabs that you see uh, from different brands are really just like licensing situations where they were like, we collabed with this influencer or this other brand, but really they just... Meaning we just used their name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you guys had a real one where you both actually worked on it. Right. <laughs> That's pretty pretty exactly. unusual. So yeah. another thing I wanted to talk about was, I mean, we've already talked about how big retailers and vendors are copying all the time. Do you see this happening mm-hmm. in the more like slow fashion, like indie space? Yeah, it's definitely really interesting. I feel like in terms of like growing a brand or starting a brand, starting to do something um, that you're like producing yourself or like designing yourself, I feel like there's definitely an element of like needing to be aware of the space others are holding and and respecting that and not only just to like respect other people's spaces but like you should want to have a unique voice because like how will you stand out from the crowd because like back to what we said before like you're not going to stand out because your pricing is lower because that's not okay like don't just go out there with like cheaper prices and be like I'm doing what this person's doing but my prices are cheaper you know yeah like don't be forever 21 or fashion nova right that's a a no-win situation when you're making yeah by yourself for sure so like you definitely should be doing something relatively unique but there's going to be so much overlap especially when you're doing like the types of things that like I'm doing or like other people in this community that I'm kind of like have found myself in are doing where there is overlap. Like some people are like into quilts. I'm, I do a lot of towels. There's definitely going to be overlap, but just be weary of like, I don't know, just do your, do your own thing. Like find your own freaking ideas, you know, like what's what's a cool (laughs) way that you can use that quilt. That's different than other people are doing, you know? Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think I definitely think that's important. But like, in terms of like, these fast fashion companies, like, I'm not going to say like, I feel safe from being copied by those companies entirely. But I feel pretty good because the towels I'm using, like, I know for a fact that these textiles like can't be produced affordably at all right now. So like, Mm -hmm. I'm not worried that like, free people or like whatever are going to copy my hats entirely because like 
how are they going to afford to produce the types of terry that I'm using? Because they're not printed. They're like chacards. So I know that they're really, really expensive mm-hmm. to make. So I feel like that's one really good component of like what a lot of these slow fashion brands are doing is we're using these older textiles that were made in a way that like no one can afford to do anymore. It makes them even more special. Like there's layers of what makes them special, you know? I just ordered one of your masks last week. I'll be making it after <laughs> we get off this call. <laughs> Woo! Yeah, I uh, am really into like, you know, trying to up my mask game. And uh, I was I was talking with one of my friends that I feel like, Masks are going to provide a lot of people who want to start their own business with an opportunity to start like stacking some money to do what they really want to do. Right. And that's so true. So I'm trying to support, you know, my buying power is pretty limited because I am on the unemployment Right. right now, but I'm really trying to help those people like turn it into something else when this time is over. You know, I think we're going to be wearing masks for a long time. I do too. And honestly, my husband and I were talking and I was like, obviously, I hope that we can break out of this pandemic in a way that like, it's like history. Mm -hmm. We'll see if that happens. But at the same time, you know, like so many other learnings we should come out of this with. I feel like the idea of wearing a mask when you're feeling under the weather Mm -hmm. should be normalized. Agree. The number of times I've gone to, to work with like, a cold and probably gotten so many other people sick on the subway ride at work is like, I should be ashamed of myself. But there is this mentality that like, it doesn't matter how sick you are, you still need to go to work. And that's a whole other issue. That's a whole other thing. I think it's an American thing. It really is. But also when you've got only like five sick days a year, I know, like that doesn't cover the number of times I get sick, which by the way, is like this whole cyclical thing because we're all going to work sick. So getting each other mm-hmm, sick. Mm-hmm. And then if you work with someone who has kids, their kids get them sick. When yeah. my daughter was little, it was like nonstop disease vector, like just right. the weirdest illnesses all the time. <laughs> you know, and I had to go to work. I'd be exactly. like, sorry, I have ringworm, but like, <laughs> I don't have any sick days, you know? Oh my God. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So like, imagine if like, you at this point you could go to work but you wore a mask and nobody would look at you like you're a crazy person yeah exactly exactly so I a few years ago um literally right after I got married that's just like how this worked out I got mono which when you're in it when you're an adult is horrible and you know I'm a buyer or at least I was a buyer so I'm like traveling all the time so my doctor was like listen you need to wear a mask I would recommend that you wear a mask when you fly and go to trade shows and stuff she's like because your immune system is so vulnerable right now and I was like okay fine so I got these really cute masks from Japan and I would get on a plane and be wearing my mask, just sitting there reading a book. And people would like cringe when they saw me. Like they would try to move as far away from me. And I'd have to be like, no, it's for my protection, not yours. You know, like we just need to normalize wearing a mask because it's so smart for so many people. Agreed. But I love what you're saying about that because I feel like, you know, as a small designer or maker, whatever you're doing, like trying to push things right now. It's like, I feel so torn about it. Like I feel weird about doing it, but like when it comes to the masks, it's like at least you're kind of pushing this trend that is arguably the most utilitarian trend in our lifetime. You know, like I'm not trying to like sell people like, (laughs) I don't know, 
I can't even give an example because I also am selling, trying to sell people hats and it's like, you don't really need that. But at least the masks are something that's like serving a very great function, you know? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, no. And I think like, listen, of course, masks were going to become like a style thing too, right? right? Because you have to wear one everywhere you go. And in the beginning, it was really hard to find a mask. So we were all wearing like the most utilitarian ones we could get our hands on. But now it's like, wait, these aren't going away. This isn't a temporary thing. Like, I want to have an outfit. I I know you're the same way, right? Like, I want it to be cute and those things I own and like, you know, I color coordinate based on what I'm wearing and stuff. I mean, I barely leave the house, but when I do, I put it all together, you know? And I think like, this is a really great opportunity to serve the public good, but also begin to build your brand. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because like, there's only so much you can do with like a tiny scrap of fabric there actually is a lot you can do. Like I I'm thinking of all the different ones I've seen out there and like people are doing like really rad things, you know, and it's, it's really fun. It's, it's like, it's basically like its own little project runway challenge. Mm-hmm. It's like, we've all been handed this task of like, make this like really stupid looking item, <laughs> like look kind of cool, you know, like, do you know what I mean? It's like, go into the grocery store and make a dress out of like yeah, the vegetables yeah, you find yeah. or something. It's like, it honestly is like a project runway task. Exactly. I think, I think it's great. And something that I love is that most people, <laughs> at least once again, I'm going to say this most people, cause you and I live in a bubble, right? Most people that I'm seeing who are making masks are using salvage fabric and like that's fucking awesome too. And I get so bummed when I walk by a gutter yeah. and see like those disposable masks in there. And like, it's, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, it's disgusting. God. So like in the cities you and I live in, especially this takes me back to like the idea of like plastic grocery store bags versus bringing your own. We all need to start bringing our own mask and like, yeah, it's really easy to wash it and hang it to dry. Totally. And, like, you know, use these like salvage fabrics. Like this mask thing could be less devastating for the world. And be like a style thing. So I, I think it's great. I'm excited for everyone. Honestly, it's funny because at the beginning of the pandemic, I was like talking to one of my best friends at home in Vancouver. And I was like, jokingly saying like, I'm excited to see like how Mew Mew does like face shields. And she was like, Oh, (laughs) what are you talking about? I hate that. I hate how people are like, you know, glamorizing this thing. And I was like, what? Why? Like, I would much rather Mew Mew be pushing me like a face shield than like a useless handbag that's going to fall apart. 100%. You know what I mean? Like, 100%. They're going to be selling us some sort of luxury item. Like they're not going to stop doing that. So why not mm-hmm. it be something that's actually serving a personal and public function? Totally. Like, that's inspiring. Totally. I agree. I agree. Necessity is the mother of invention. Yes. You have to remember that. And so yes. like, I think that this is a chance for artists to innovate and designing is an art, right? So sometimes, you know, we've been in this rut where so many of us have had to work in fast fashion and make the same shit all the time, Mm -hmm. as we've talked about. This is a chance for everybody to get outside of that and do something totally new and solve a new problem. Agreed. Agreed. Well, is there anything else you wanted to talk about today? Do you have any final words for the listeners? Honestly, I think that like, to sum this all up and basically it's it's I feel like you say it every podcast is 
to buy less and buy better. And I feel like that's the thing that like, Mm -hmm. we honestly have to keep saying it because it's back to what I said before. It's like a deprogramming. We're all so used to just like buying things constantly. And like, I'll be honest, I'm still guilty of it too. But like I made a decision years ago that I wouldn't buy fast fashion anymore. Like you've mentioned, there's a bigger umbrella than I think most people understand of what fits into fast fashion. But when I do have like that urge to buy, which is like, you know, I'm not proud of that because it's just like, you know, this indoctrinated capitalist urge that I have. And that's stupid. Mm -hmm. But then I buy vintage or, you know, I, I buy from someone who's handmade something or from a brand like Big Bud Press where I like think what they're doing is really impressive. So I just think that that's mm-hmm. something that like we should all, you know, try and try and like commit to a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. I think like, you know, it's so it's secondhand September. And this is a good time for people to test that idea of not buying brand new fast fashion stuff. Yeah. I think it's like a, it's baby steps. I always think it's like, okay, this month I'm going to change this. And the next month I'm still going to do that, but I'm going to add this next change. Totally. And so that, that can apply to everything from like using less plastic mm-hmm. to breaking up with fast fashion. I mean, we yeah. have to break up with fast fashion, guys. This is, just, this is just what it is. For sure. As long as we're buying it, it keeps happening. Yeah. There's a direct line from your wallet to people being paid three cents to make something. How horrible. It's crazy to think about that, but it's true. And yes, ultimately the retailers need to make the big change, but you've worked for a lot of these companies. So have I. We know that they are not going to stop until they feel it in their pocketbook. Like that is just how it is. Money talks there. I've been doing, this is kind of like a side note, but I've been doing, you've probably seen like every couple of weeks or like month, I've been doing this little quiz on my Instagram stories, which is like, which is the most sustainable clothing choice. And maybe I'm not wording it right. Cause I'm surprised by the answers I get, but like, <laughs> it's the clothes in your closet. So like, yeah, maybe you, you have been shopping at forever 21 or Zara forever, or like whatever choices you've made that have created the wardrobe that you have like just commit to them. You already made those choices. So like if that forever 21 shirt is still alive and kicking, then wear it, you know, like, I feel like maybe it's a fun activity to like once a month, go through your closet and pull the things out you haven't worn in a while and like style them up in a new way and make mm-hmm. them feel fresh and new. Like, you know, you don't, always need new things. Like I really do not need new things. I love my clothes so much. Like Mm -hmm. I get so excited when I look at my wardrobe. Like I, I definitely need to like teach myself this a little more, but like just make better purchases so that when you look in your closet, you get so excited to like wear something that you've already bought. Yeah. Yeah. And most of the time it's not going to be something that you got on mega hot clearance. I mean, right. Unfortunately, we just don't build that same sort of like relationship with what we buy when we do that, unless we had been planning to buy it for a long time. So I'm not saying you shouldn't buy stuff on sale, but don't buy it like spontaneously needs to be a calculated, thoughtful decision. And I also, I think a lot about, you know, the clothes in your closet being the most sustainable thing you can wear, which is 100% true. A couple of years ago when this idea of like a capsule wardrobe started to emerge on the internet, I would see people on Instagram gutting their closets, 
throwing everything out and then buying new capsule wardrobe clothes. And guys, please don't do that. That is not the point of capsule wardrobe. I don't even think I've really heard about that. I'm going to have to look that up. It's basically this idea of like having less clothes that are more versatile that you can wear all the time. Which is true. It's true, but it doesn't but mean that you... Not if it means, like, you have to get rid of everything yeah, and, like, start over. exactly, exactly. It doesn't mean that, like, on Thursday you decide you're going to do a capsule wardrobe. So that Saturday you take everything out off your closet, off the hangers, stuff it in trash bags, send it off somewhere. Then, meanwhile, you get on the internet and place, like, 27 orders for oh 27 things that are part of your capsule wardrobe. Like, that's just not how it works. And it goes back no. to this, like... like Marie Kondo had a really great idea with like not hoarding stuff, right? And right. Like passing it off to the world for, for someone else to appreciate it. But yeah. what really happened is everybody threw out all their stuff all oh, at once. Yeah. And I've read a series of articles that have said that during the pandemic, people were like, oh, now I spend a lot of time at home. I regret getting rid of XYZ. So I'm uh, going to buy it again. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like. I didn't read Marie Kondo's book, but I watched the show. And I, and so I feel like maybe she stressed this more in the book. But one thing I felt like was missing was just basically exactly what I said, like buy less, buy better. Like the whole stress of like, okay, if you're going to do this purge now, then it's like, it's a big lifestyle change and you need to commit. If you're going to do this now, you need to commit to it for life basically like this concept Mm -hmm. of buying things that really spark joy that will spark joy right now that will spark joy a year from now five years from now you know like that is kind of like it's like a permanent choice Mm -hmm. you make as opposed to just like it being like a closet clean out show which is kind of what it felt like a bit to me yeah yeah do you remember that show oh my god what was it called it was, it's not on anymore. It's more of like an early aughts reality show where they would go to what not to wear. Yes. Thank you. And they would go to someone's <laughs> house. And one thing, all these people who needed oh. these apparel, like fashion makeovers had in common is they had so much stuff. Like I remember specifically, in yeah. the episode, there was a woman who had hundreds of novelty socks. Oh my God. And they threw them all out. And I was like, wait, this isn't how real change happens. It doesn't happen instantly there I feel like you could do a whole episode on what not to wear because like I feel like that show troubled me so much because they just like stripped the personality out of everyone's wardrobe and made them all look the same like I feel like I actually love Stacey London I feel like I've heard her talk about it in later years how she would have done things differently if it were now Uh but that's what I appreciate about like Queer Eye because I think that they still try and like keep the personality with the person. Yeah. Like a person who likes wacky socks isn't going to give up wacky socks. Just completely. Right. Exactly. Just stop on so many of them. Just stick to like your favorite wacky socks. (laughs) You need a new pair of wacky socks every week. (laughs) You only have so many feet, you know? (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Danny. This has been so delightful. Thank you. Wait, I actually have one more thought okay. to leave things on. Yeah. I, this is just something I was thinking about the other day is like the irony of the term fast fashion versus slow fashion, because like in a weird way, like what I'm doing is kind of faster than fast fashion could ever be because of like what I said before, like I can just like literally make <laughs> something right now. 
put it on my Instagram stories and be like, Hey, do you guys like this? Like that is like, it, it's so fast. Mm-hmm. If we're talking about like the speed of getting things to the consumer, like in a way, like fast fashion could never it's fast. dream of doing things that fast. You know what I mean? <laughs> they couldn't. God bless them. They're trying. Right. They <laughs> are trying. So I don't know. It's just something I was thinking about the other day. I was like, that's kind of ironic, isn't it? It is. It is. I'm working on an upcoming episode about fast fashion, like really defining what it is because mm-hmm. I see a lot of confusion all over the internet about what fast fashion is. And I think a lot of people think, Oh, well, yeah. is it cheap? That's fast fashion. Well, that's not necessarily true, right? Because right. there's plenty, and you and I have talked about this offline. There are retailers out there who are charging $150 for a sweater. It's fast fashion. They're just taking a really yeah. high margin. So you can't. They use the same factory. They as use the Forever same factory. Yes. Or whatever. Dude, I can't tell you how many times in my career I've been in a meeting with a vendor and they're like, oh, yeah, no, we also make stuff for Forever 21. Right. So it's not the price point that indicates it. It's not even necessarily how fast they can get it to you. I mean, with the exception of Zara, like they blow my mind with how fast they're. When I think about fast fashion, I think it's really about how fast it comes in and out of your life. Oh, so true. And I don't see people talking about this a lot, but like I think it's like it's going to come into your life like really fast and then you're going to be over it even faster. Oh, God, that's so disgusting to think about it that way. So accurate. And then you're going to buy more because one of the real ways to identify fast fashion is not the price point. It's not even the aesthetic of what they sell. It's how many items are they launching every week? Like when I go into their store, how many different things do they have? And how fast do I see that stuff go from full price to sale? Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting. So true. You know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. I can really like dig into the philosophy. (laughs) I'm sure you could. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Danny. This was so fun. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you so much, Danny, for being the raddest guest ever. I want to say we recorded for close to like four hours. So thank you so much, Danny, for hanging in there and keeping it going and just being the best. I promise I'll try to get her back for a future episode because I think we have so much more to talk about. Normally, I would have another segment of information right here, but this episode is pretty long already, so I'm just going to call it a day. Thank you for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and maybe even subscribe. You might like it. And please tell a friend, like, let's get more people to stop buying vegan leather so it just goes away. Do you have some feedback, an episode idea, a question? Do you want to be a guest on Close Horse? Drop me a line at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can just DM via Instagram at Close Horse Podcast. By the way, thank you for everyone who's been sharing our Instagram posts and recommending us to friends. It, it's like what keeps me going. You have no idea how much it means to me. Also, a few episodes ago, I talked about how I'm working on a directory of good brands and vintage sellers. It's still in the works, I promise. I'm in the process of moving out to the country from Philadelphia to Lancaster County, and it's 
kind of a surprise. I wasn't planning on it happening right now. (laughs) So I just don't have the bandwidth right now to work on the directory because I want to continue to deliver new episodes to you. But it will be happening when I'm all settled in, like in a month or so. So please drop me a line if you want to be included or have a recommendation for a brand that you think should be included. As always, extra special super thanks to Dustin Travis White, who not only provides our music, not only provides our audio support, but also found me the coolest cottagecore Liz Sport blouse at the Salvation Army today. What a gem. All right. Bye.